Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, it's been amazing. Uh, just so you know, we got, I feel like, come full circle because we got an invitation to go to the prestigious Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. Uh, which is the largest comedy festival in the world, which happens this summer in Montreal. And I will be interviewing uh, Kent Alterman, who is the president of original programming for Comedy Central up there on, I believe it's Thursday, July 24th at 4.30 p.m. And you can go on to the Just for Laughs website if you're listening up in Canada or if you're going to Montreal and you can get tickets. It's going to be a pretty amazing thing. I've never done a podcast in front of a live audience, and hopefully it won't put you to sleep like most of my cold opens. But thanks again for all your support. Uh, as usual, uh, I like to do a cold open that sort of relates to my guest, and today it's a really, really great day because i I get to interview John Murray, who is the president and CEO of Bunin Murray Productions, which, uh, as you know, started it all in the reality world with a show that's been on about God knows how many decades, three decades, uh, called The Real World. And uh, my story is kind of interesting 
in the fact that I never really know what I'm going to talk about until I'm around uh, the guest or I sort of think about it when they're about to come in. And um, as you probably know, I represented Dave Chappelle from when he was 18 uh, to when he was about 26 years old through four $100 million movies, The Nutty Professor, You've Got Mail, Con Air, and Blue Streak. And then we stopped working together. But when he came to New York from Washington, D.C. in the uh, early 90s, um, he was 18, and he was an amazing talent, and he was uh, really changing the comedy scene in New York, even as a, a young artist, and you could tell there was something special about him. And as Chris Rock would say today, uh, Dave Chappelle is the comedy equivalent to Prince in the sense that whenever he shows up somewhere, you just want to be there and you want to see the performance and you want to be a part of it. And unfortunately for a lot of artists who are brilliant in the early years of their careers, uh, and sometimes in the later years, there is a price to be paid for being talented and being special and being nice and being generous and being the kind of person who is has a feeling for all kinds of people. And that price is normally paid by the friendships that you keep with people who aren't as generous, aren't as kind, aren't as friendly, and aren't as talented. But for some reason, they have worked their way into your life and you feel the need to be with them. They fill the void of a, a kind of friendship that you had where you were and now where you are, when you don't really know people and you don't really have the relationships, all you have is this person that, that, that came with you. Um, in Dave Chappelle's case, that person was Dave Edwards. And Dave was a guy who just was the kind of person who trouble found him wherever he was. There was always drama. There was always an argument. There was always conflict, and there was always Dave Chappelle in the middle cleaning up the mess that was made by Dave Edwards. And it wasn't that Dave Edwards didn't have talent or that he wouldn't have become a great actor or an extraordinary comedian. It was just that there were forces working within him that he couldn't control, and no one could control them. And unless you're an extraordinarily talented person and a genius at what you do or you prove that you're in another level, you can be difficult. You know, Russell Crowe can throw a cell phone at an assistant's head and still get another big payday and a big movie because he's an extraordinary actor. Roseanne could fire 27 people over the course of a series of Roseanne and sing the national anthem the way she did in San Diego 
and still keep going on her sitcom and being number one because she proved that she could do it, even in that frame of mind. But when you're a young artist or in any profession and you're in a situation where you don't treat people like you want to be treated, you're going to be in deep shit. And sometimes you can have people protect you, like Dave Chappelle protected him. But for the most part, it's a big challenge. And Dave protected him in every turn. And one of the things Dave asked me to do was to help Dave, to help him get something that would help launch his career and give him an opportunity to branch out on his own and show the world that he was a good guy and that he was a guy who could be a star and that he wasn't somebody who was um, riding on his coattails. And occasionally when an artist you represents who you revere and you respect and you love and you want to be happy as a manager, you do things for other people and you work as hard for those other people as you would for that artist and they are endorsing you to do so. And he told me to make something happen with Dave Edwards and I had relationships at MTV with many executives who you will hear the names of during this podcast. And I pushed and pushed, especially with a relationship I had of a great executive named Lisa Berger, who was at MTV and then subsequently ran the uh, programming at E! and now is at ABC doing reality and running reality there. And I uh, sent her videos. I had her meet uh, Dave Edwards. I had them... You know, anything I could to get him that gig, I did. And every no I got, I would push through it until I got a yes, until I got the yes. And he was booked on The Real World. I believe it was the second season. Right before the season where they went to San Francisco with Puck and Pedro. It was the season before that. And... Dave got the show. Um, he seemed grateful. Um, and uh, the show started production. And I was thrilled because I knew the real world was building. And I knew that he would, if he played his cards right, could be in a position to be really strong and actually get even more notoriety than Dave Chappelle at that point in time. And I knew that would take a lot of pressure off Dave. And... Dave Chappelle and that Dave Edwards would be able to move to another level. And through the grapevine, you would hear the stories of how things were going and there was conflict and that Dave was creating conflict on the show. And on reality television, conflict is good. Conflict is like uh, something you pray for on a reality television show. You want tears, you want screaming, you want anger, you want fighting. Um, unfortunately, for Dave Edwards, it wasn't the kind of anger and fighting and aggression that you wanted to be on camera to show the world. 
and there was a situation that happened where there was a girl on a bed with her girlfriends in the room where she had a sheet or a comforter over her. And uh, Dave Edwards and a few of the guys started pulling on the comforter and trying to take it off of her because she was only wearing uh, panties and a bra. And they weren't successful at first. And then she went out in the hallway, wrapped around herself in it. And Dave went and did everything in his power to pull the sheet off of her, which he did, which revealed her in her bra and panties for all of the world to see. And against her will, when she said, stop, stop, no, no. And there was a subsequent argument back and forth. And the word came down on the street where I was in New York that Dave Edwards would be the first person fired by the real world. And he was removed by the show. And he was taken away because the women felt unsafe. And the people at MTV felt unsafe about the production and the insurance risks. And the great opportunity that Dave Edwards had, the great opportunity that Dave Chappelle helped create for him with the help of myself, was lost. And instead of a great situation where Dave Edwards would build on this television opportunity that very few people have in front of millions of people, it's the hottest show on television for young kids, a place where he could have shown himself as a person who was a, a great man and a great comedian and a great actor and a great personality. Instead, he did just the opposite. He made executives feel like they weren't able to feel comfortable hiring him. He showed that he would be a problem in a situation when there were cameras on him. He showed that he didn't play well with others. And he showed to myself and Dave that even when given an extraordinary opportunity to help turn everything around for him and get his own career and his own following, he self-destructed for all the world to see, which created a situation which was like ankle weights in show business for him and created more tension and more pressure for Dave to try to help him overcome that in the future. And so the lesson here in this podcast for the story, I would think, is that if you are an artist or if you're out there in any profession, when the spotlight's on you, make sure that you come across as an extraordinary person, generous, kind, warm, giving, strong, a great person, somebody who's not an asshole, and somebody who people can trust and rely on and have faith in you and believe in you and want to hire you in the future, not somebody who's the opposite of all those things. Because... Customato once said this to famous manager of Mike Tyson. He said, if you're born round, 
you don't die square. But what I will say about that is, is many people out there have the opportunity who are born round to turn things around, to figure it out, to change the pattern, to look within, to get help, to figure out the things that you're doing that are self-destructive, make the changes necessary, and throughout a period of time, grow to be the person who can become the square. And that's what you have to do to get to the next level in our business or any business. And if you are somebody out there who is suffering, who is in a, who is in a situation where you feel like you're being self-destructive or you say that extra sentence that brings people down or you do things that alienate people, understand what you're doing that's not working and work towards changing it. And I guarantee you, if you change the pattern, you'll change the course of your career and you'll change your life forever. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now about the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a very, very exciting day because I'm sitting across from who I consider to be one of the most innovative and groundbreaking uh, television producers, CEOs, and heads of a company that has really done amazing things and has really changed the landscape of television like 
probably no other company. And I'm talking about John Murray from uh, Bunim Murray Productions. So I want to talk to you a little bit about him before I introduce him, because I think it's it's deserving. Um, uh, John is the head of a company that is a leading producer of innovative entertainment content in not only the country, but the world. He's an Emmy award-winning producer, and his company as well is widely credited with creating the reality television genre with his hit series, The Real World. Can you say 29 seasons on MTV? What do you know that's ever gone 29 seasons? Is anybody listening 29? That's what I'm saying. This guy is amazing. Uh, his company continued to innovate with the first reality game show, Road Rules. In 1995, the first reality sitcom, The Simple Life with Paris Hilton and Nicole Ritchie. In 2003, the first reality soap opera, Starting Over. Um, Buna Murray's programming includes Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Courtney and Kim Take Miami, Total Divas with the Girlfriends and Women of Wrestling on E. Uh, of course, The Real World and The Challenge on MTV. Project Runway, Project Runway All-Stars, and Under the Gun for Lifetime. Love Thy Sister for We, and Bad Girls Club, um, and Bad Girls All-Star Battle, which is a favorite of mine where you have the baddest girls out there competing and also together. It's, uh, it's crazy. Uh, Love Games, Best Ink, um, which is sort of like a project runway for tattoo artists on Oxygen, which is pretty cool. They've also produced award-winning films like Valentine Road for HBO, Pedro, which actually was a movie based on a character that was the first gay uh, HIV uh, man on television, I believe, which appeared on The Real World in 1994, and they did a movie about that as well, uh, which was incredible, and the Emmy Award-winning Autism the Musical on HBO. Uh, they've also launched a number of different entities within their company, uh, Buna Murray Productions uh, Films, Digital, Latin. They are based in Van Nuys, California, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that uh, the company was started with Mary Ellis Bunim, who passed away of breast cancer in 2004. And um, together they uh, made magic, and I'm just honored that John is here with us, and we're going to have an amazing time. Please welcome my guest today, John Murray. Uh, so, uh, I have so many things to talk to you about and, uh, you know, when I sit across from you, it's, it's interesting. This is probably, you know, my 47th or 48th show, almost going a year and every person that walks in, there's an interesting feeling I get from them. And when you walk in the room, it's like, it's like you're, you're dressed very contemplated casually but you're like presidential. You're like literally like a man who walks in and you are a leader of men and women. And it's like this energy that you have that's so powerful and so like I literally feel like I want to change my posture <laughs> and and make sure my vocabulary is all correct because you just have this quality about you that makes me want to be the best representation of myself uh it's it's a very interesting thing sitting across from you so again 
uh, an honor being here with you. Thanks. No problem. Uh, what I like to do when I start these things is I like to start from the beginning so our audience can sort of understand your journey. So take me back to where you grew up, um, what the family life was like, and where was the first thing that happened? What was your first inspiration of ever wanting to be in the entertainment business? Sure. Um, well, if you do go back, I do think you start to get a sense of how you ended up where you ended up. Um, in my case, um, I was born in Gulfport, Mississippi to a British mother and uh, a dad who was from uh, Illinois. And um, it was my father's first job at a Veterans Administration hospital right out of college. Uh, he was a psychologist. Um, and we were definitely, they were definitely fish out of water. Um, and uh, they pretty much hated the South. Uh, it was in the late, it was in the 50s. And um, the South was a tough place to be then. And they, they really abhorred uh, uh, the way racism existed there. And so uh, almost from the moment they got there, they were trying to figure out how to leave. And um, Why did they settle there? Well, it was because it was my f first job my dad could get. And I think they both, just my mom being from Britain and my dad being from Illinois, just weren't aware of that much about the South. But once they got there, they realized they didn't want to stay there. So, um, and they were a little protected because they were uh, with a whole bunch of people who were um, connected to the Veterans Administration and to the military. So they, it was a little bit of a cocoon inside a, a larger world. Um, but anyway, but I was born there, and but we ultimately moved to, uh, to Syracuse. And then uh, Syracuse, New York, and then um, a couple years later, my mom decided my brother and I should experience um, Oxford, England, where she grew up. So within a few years, I, w I had a southern accent, I had an upstate New York <laughs> accent, and I had a British accent. So I was sort of always the kid who was the outsider. I was always, you know, sometimes made fun of because I spoke differently than other people, um, and so I think from that very early age, I was always very much um, an observer and very much realizing that I was different from other people. And therefore, when you feel like you're different, you're very much attuned to how people are reacting to you and attuned to what's going out there. And then, you know, later, as I grew up, uh, realized I was gay. And again, uh, off at least certainly in the... Uh, in the in the 70s when you're someone is gay again you're very much attuned to what other how other people are reacting to you and at that time you were trying to be closeted because people just weren't out so again i think i think what i guess i'm leading to is that this made me very much um someone who observed behavior and i think ultimately the stuff i did with reality tv is about observing human behavior and being sensitive to it and being able to document it yeah, I always say that, you know, what makes a great artist or a great producer or any great person in any profession is a loss of innocence and what happened during that loss of innocence of like some tragedy or something that happened that you you had no control over. And it's fascinating because one of the greatest things about your programming that you your lane as i like to call it is that you create situations where people 
don't have control. They're in con- they're in a controlled environment where they have no control. And it's interesting that you said you you had the British accent, so you went around. You had no control where your family brought you. Oh, we're going to Syracuse. We are okay. We'll go there. Whatever. And then the interesting thing is, is and again, I I don't know this because I'm not you know living in that world, but. You said that, you know, then you discover that you're gay. And I don't know if you know at that time when it's happening, you know, that you feel like you have any control just like you did, you know, at that time when you were moving. So it's like here this thing you discover about yourself. And it's like another thing that happens that and and there's nothing bad about or whatever. But at the time when you're like you said, like when you have to be in the 70s where you you're closeted. It's more things that are out of your control. It must be. It must have been really difficult. So how how did you move towards entertainment? What inspired you? Was it was it were those events that inspired you, or you? No, um, not specifically. I think those probably made me good at what I ultimately uh, chose to do. But um, uh, when I was um, in college uh, at uh, the State University of New York at Geneseo, um, I got involved with the campus cable station and very quickly got involved in all aspects of it, whether it was news or covering sports or whatever. And I really enjoyed it. And I was a political science major thinking I would eventually go to Washington and run presidential campaigns or, or work awesome. for a congressman or a senator. So I was a little prophetic when I said you're presidential. <laughs> Um, smart enough not to uh, <laughs> not to stay in that line of business, um, but anyway. So ultimately, I was I, I think I was more interested in the way the media covered um, elections and politics than I was in actually getting out there and participating in uh, in politics. So um, I realized that was an interest, and so I looked around and ultimately found the University of Missouri School of Journalism and transferred to Missouri. Um, for my junior and senior year and uh, got a bachelor's degree in journalism uh, and went right to work at a um, TV station in Green Bay, Wisconsin, producing their 10 o'clock news. So, um, you know, I think, and I tell this to young people, you know, you just sort of have to be open to things. And uh, I don't think you necessarily have to go off to college knowing what you want to do. You just have to be open to all the possibilities and use it as a time to really discover what you're passionate about because um, passion, I think, is the key to success. Um, uh, and uh, so so it's finding that thing that you're passionate about. And I became very passionate about uh, television news and ultimately the larger world of television. I think what you just said, our audience is, is very inspirational for them. I also think it's interesting what you said about discovering a certain part of yourself and not being able to share it with the world and there's a lot of people out in the audience who do wonder whether who are gay and wonder okay can I come out when do I come out how does that work because there's certain actors that I know and comedians I know who still have not come out and there's ones that have and I find that the ones that have become extraordinary artists, uh, are free, feel comfortable, and are let loose of that baggage that they had, and they've just exploded, and the people who haven't are restrained not only in their personal life, but in their professional life. For our audience, 
How did you make that decision? And what was the time where you finally decided, hey, I'm going to tell my family, I'm going to tell my friends, and I'm going to live the life that I want to live as opposed to the life that people think I should live? Well, again, it was different times. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so envious of young people who grew up today and and it's just they're they're just who they are, and they don't really feel they have to protect their parents from it. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them today in high school are are just being comfortable with who they are, and and they don't even want to label themselves. They're just figuring out who they are. So it's a, it's a obviously a much better time today for young people. Um, but for me, it wasn't. I didn't even really come to the full realization because in the media at that time, the only people you saw that represented as being gay were suicidal crazies. Um, and I said, well, I'm not a suicidal crazy, so I guess I'm not gay. Uh, I just know I don't want to, um, you know, be with women particularly. Um, so it's a lot of heterosexual men who don't want to be with women either. <laughs> yeah, they do seem to spend a lot of time on the golf course, of course, with their buddies. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, so I think for me it was... Um, you know, I, I, I think it was when I was, um, you know, I waited until, and, and, and it wasn't like I, I was burning to tell people, but I think I waited till I finally, um, you know, began to, I began to explore it sort of on my own and started to make some friends, some gay friends. And then at the point when I had, I was probably, you know, 25 or 26, living in New York by then, um, had a boyfriend. I decided that was the time that I needed to tell my parents because I felt like I was keeping some important part of me from them. And so I felt that was the time to tell them. At that point, most of my friends, most of my work friends knew. Um, and so then I, I let my parents know. Um, How did that go? And I, you know, my parents were... Um, were were uh, uh, very um, progressive people, um, and uh, they were they were Unitarians, which is a somewhat liberal religion. So they didn't have any religious baggage. But um, my dad was fine. He was a psychologist, sort of processed it the way he processed things. Um, he wasn't a particularly emotional person, so he w- he w- he was fine. My mom, I think. Um, she she sort of um it made her take a step back only because i think she had this plan for me you know that i was going to you know get married and have kids and all that and at that time the assumption was if you were gay you didn't get married and have kids um so i think it took her back for a moment she reacted she was supportive but i could tell she was it took her more time to process it and and interestingly enough i was much closer to her um, so I think the impact was, was just time, but, you know, within months she was fully supportive and my parents joined, you know, P flag and, you know, they would always send me clippings about, you know, when good things happened in terms of changing laws and things like that. So they were on board very quickly and were very warm towards, uh, my then boyfriend and, and later towards my partner. So, um, you know, and then the great thing was, um, flash forward, you know, uh, 10 or actually about 15 years later, uh, my partner and I decided to have a child and, um, uh, we had our child Dylan through adoption and, um, my mom flew out from Syracuse, uh, right after he was born. And it was sort of amazing. She had, she had saved, um, some of my baby clothes. And, uh, you know, it was sort of really touching because 
you know, she went through those after I told her I was gay. There was those 15 years where the assumption was gay people don't have kids. And so it was really wonderful when she uh, showed up and brought the things out and uh, um, we took pictures with our son in them. And it was just it was just a great moment. Oh, man, John, that's uh, I know this sounds crazy. That's, you know, this is one of the few times where you actually somebody tells a story and you're like, you're choked up that that. uh Wow, that's that's what I like to call a holy shit moment in life. That's incredible. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's uh, I was very very lucky to have the parents I had, and uh, uh, they both passed away within three months of each other about about five years ago, and uh, you know, I really miss them because I would love them to uh, you know see the next steps in in our son growing up and 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 you know share things that happened to me each day, which, uh, you know, for anybody who gets to me my age or, you know, you start to lose those people around you that you really care about and, um, you know, you go on, but, you know, you, you remember them each day. Well, I'm sure uh, they felt the same way about you, obviously. I mean, to, to, to save the clothes and to bring them, that's just... I can share with you that's one of the... That's one of the greatest stories I've heard on this couch. Um, and so, and it's just interesting to see all the things that have happened with you in your life that have shaped you. And uh, it's incredible. So getting back, so you go from Syracuse to New York and from doing that news thing and you go to New York to pursue this entertainment thing, but working as a producer in the news, when did you decide that you were going to move towards a different area of television and what inspired you to do so? Because again, you know, when you, you and your partner ended up creating the real world, you know, that's a little bit different than news so yeah. how does that what and there wasn't anything to inspire any like you know like when jason goldberg and ashton kutcher did punked they had as their template candid camera candid camera in my mind and and i don't know if anybody will go with me on this i mean it it doesn't get it's the most under it doesn't get the credit i mean it changed the face of tell i mean there's probably like 50,000 hours of television that spun off from Candid Camera. But for the real world, I don't really know, I can't really think of anything on television before that that was even remotely similar or a template that you could point to and say, hey, let's do this. But you didn't have a template. So how do you go from news and, and finding inspiration to go in this area and to start your own company and to move forward into that? It just, what was the journey to that point? Um, within, a f within three or four years of producing television news, I realized I had interests beyond just television news. And uh, so I had an opportunity to become the program director of a TV station in Rochester, New York, uh, which allowed me not only to, to, it allowed me to be in, you know, to be involved with the local talk show we produced. At that time, we did a show called PM Magazine, which was a... I remember I, I won the co-host for an evening at, at, oh, there you at, go. Uh, 
an evening magazine in Boston. Yeah, and it, it was actually a great uh, PM magazine, which was the spinoff of Evening Magazine. It was a great training ground because it really taught you about long-form storytelling because the stories on that show were, you know, eight or nine minutes or seven or eight minutes as opposed to a three-minute piece on the news. And for those of you who don't know, um, what happened was these shows were... I guess they were locally produced in huge markets and some secondary markets for the, I believe, the 7.30 to 8 p.m. slot or the 7 to 7.30 slot in your local market. And you would have a feel of like a real magazine television show that seemed high quality in many instances, maybe in some instances not, but with stories, these long-form stories, and it was really, really popular. Yeah, and the, the, depending on the market, you would produce some of your own stories. For instance, I did one on Foster Brooks, the comedian. The comedian who pretended to be drunk on right, the Dean Martin Right, right. So I did a piece on him knowing that they would it would get picked up by the other um, PM magazines around the country. Um, and so, but we would then also use stories from others. So, so as a local station, we only had to produce, we usually tried to produce one story for each episode, but then we would have another story from one of the other stations that we thought would be interesting to our audience, but we would have the wraparounds with our local, um, hosts anyway, but it was great. And then we also did, um, uh, we did a talk show out of a, um, out of a mall, um, and we would uh, broadcast the Rush Philharmonic concerts on Saturday night. We sold them to Merrill Lynch and, and preempted uh, Fantasy Island and uh, I think Love Boat. And um, we also uh, broadcast an LPGA golf tournament that came out of Rochester. So it was a really uh, inventive and uh, ambitious television market. And so I got a lot of great experience. And then ultimately I went to New York City to work for... Harrington, Ryder, and Parsons, which was a television rep firm that helped local stations buy and schedule, helped local, they, they helped local stations sell their uh, spot time. Um, in the television world, you've got like national advertisers that want to buy certain regions of the country. And so um, a company like mine would represent stations in various parts of the country and we would put together packages and, um, and sell that to advertisers. And they needed someone at, the, at, at HRP to help those local stations buy and schedule their syndicated programming. So I was sort of like a stockbroker for syndicated programming. So I would say, oh, there's this young new woman named Oprah Winfrey. I think she's really great and you should really, you know, consider putting her in at four o'clock in your, in your market or, you know, people's court, you should look at that as a news leading because it'll bring male viewers. So I had about three years working at HRP, really studying television. It was just a great opportunity to see schedules throughout now, the country. Now, is it true that you actually are using that as an example or is it true during, at, at that time where you actually did get to see the first presentations of Oprah and People's Court. Yeah. And so, so you did. Yeah, yeah. Well, People's Court had already been presented when I was still, I had bought it in Rochester, New York, when I was program director there and was using it very successfully leading into our local news. But Oprah Winfrey, yeah, when I was uh, uh, at HRP, they were launching that show. And so, um, you know, and it was interesting because there were some stations who were very nervous about having a black woman front a talk show. Um, and there were some I couldn't, couldn't convince to put her on. They, they obviously regretted that later. Um, and when you saw her, you, I don't think I've ever met anybody who actually 
saw like a obviously she was doing it in Chicago, but I mean who saw whatever the sizzle reel or the presentation that was being given to people when you first saw her, what was your first thought? I just thought she was incredibly warm and engaging, um, so likable. And, you know, people forget, but television is all about liking the person and wanting to come back day after day to them. Um, And I just thought she was, I just, you know, at that point, you know, Donahue had been very successful and I had had Donahue on in in Rochester. Um, But she really brought this, this sort of extra piece to it, this warmth and this engagement. Um, that, that I think a number of us thought she could she could be a hit, and so, uh, uh, but you never know. Um, but anyway, but um, uh, so anyway, so um, so from that vantage point at HRP, I got to be pitched by the likes of the King brothers, who were huge in syndication, and from Dick Robertson, who ran uh, 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 Telepictures, and there were all these syndication companies, and they would come and pitch me their shows, show me their sizzles, and it was. For me, it was a learning lab. Um, and at some point, I started to come up with ideas for television shows, and then I pitched them back to those same people and started selling some ideas. And, what was the uh, first idea you sold? The first idea I sold was called Dr. Doctor, and there was later a series called Dr. Doctor, but this was my reality Dr. Doctor, and it was going to be a real-life Marcus Welby situation of course. where we would set up a doctor and there would be uh, you know, his... Uh, and he would have a younger doctor with him and we would bring our cameras in and we would sort of document the interactions between him and different patients. It was a little bit diagnosis, like what's wrong with me Mm -hmm. and, um, some good takeaway information. Um, so I sold, I sold that to, um, a company, uh, uh, called new world television. And um, I needed an agent to negotiate the deal. And so I called a friend of mine, Rich Colbert, whose dad was in, uh, syndication had sold a bunch of game shows and and I said so who do I get for this and he said well there's this young agent at William Morris who's really sort of pioneering the syndication area his name is Mark Itkin and uh, I said great Um, and then there was another guy named Phil Kent I think that they had had mentioned anyway by the end of the day Mark I guess Rich called Mark and Mark called me and offered his services. It's sort of the best getting an agent story ever because I really didn't have to look for one. He called me and said he'd be happy to represent me. And he got a whole hundred dollars out of that $1,000 option. (laughs) And I still Uh, have a copy of the $900 check that I got from William Morris. I think Um, he's, uh, I think he's gotten a lot more than that since. Yeah. Well, he's, uh, you know, he, he really became the king of syndication. In now, terms is, is, of you, as is, an do agent. your company still work with him? We don't. We worked with him for 20 years. And then um, when uh, William Morris merged with Endeavor, we took it as our opportunity. We really felt at that point that um, we just didn't need an agent. We had five lawyers who did our deals. We just, uh, we had the relationships. And at that point, it just became uh, just a a business decision. And we were also selling the company. And it just became a decision that it made sense for us to just to represent ourselves. Now, this is interesting. When an agency represents a talent or a company, or a an executive producer who runs a television show. There's actually um, there's a few different factions. What the agency tries to do when they represent you is, in a scripted sense, they try to package the writers, 
a private package the talent and they align themselves with the almighty package and what the package allows them to do through the percentages of the license fee which is the cost per episode of the show and eventually the cost of the entire uh, each year um, and a percentage of uh, other things which we could get into but it would bore you then the artist or the company does not have to pay a commission to the agency normally. And so the advantage to an agency uh, representing you is they set up all the meetings as a company, they do everything, they have all the conversations with you, they negotiate with your lawyer, and then normally you don't have to write them a check. They get their fee from the license fee and the, and the, and the network that's doing it or the, whatever it is. Now, what's fascinating is when you do your deals now, because I don't even know the answer to this, I know certain managers who don't use agencies and they sell shows and they negotiate like a, a package for themselves as the management company, sort of like a rogue kind of thing. Like, for instance, uh, James Dixon, who represents Jon Stewart and Steve Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel, even though he's not a manager, he's, I don't even know if he calls himself an agent. He's probably like a magent. When he did the, let's say the Kimmel deal for Jimmy Kimmel Live, he got a package which paid him an enormous amount of money, uh, a much greater fee than any percentage that he would ever get from the artist. Sometimes it's almost as much as the artist because it's just uh, in a talk show, it can be a huge thing. So when you do your own deals with the lawyers, are you allowed to negotiate also a separate package that the agents would normally have made anyway? Uh, no. I mean, part of, the, part of my concern about the idea of the packaging is that a lot of times with reality shows, the agents aren't packaging it. You know, there are not writers to be brought in. There are not stars to be brought in. So as a reality producer, often you're, you know, you're selling an idea with a sizzle reel and the, the stars are real people. So the agency isn't getting you those people. Um, so, you know, I always felt like if it's a true package, great, we'll support it. But if it's, if we're just selling the show, just just take 10% from us. Because for me, it was about putting the best product on the screen, and that package cut into my putting the best product on the screen because that came out of the budget. And they were still only going to give me, say, $400,000 to make the show. So suddenly 40, I'm taking 20... Well, usually, you, usually they would take... Uh, um, it would be uh, 5%, and they would sometimes take 2.5% off the top, and the other 25 they'd get later. But, yep. but um, it was, I found more and more that money was the difference between making sort of the show I wanted to make and the show that I was only allowed to make. Um, so I didn't go to another agency because, you know, Mark is still a friend and, uh, he, he, he did great service for us for 20 years, but it just, uh, we got to a point where it just didn't make sense to work with an agency. Got it. He's amazing, amazing agent. And before we go back, I just want to ask you one more thing about, cause you mentioned, you know, normally you're going with real people and it's real things, but 
as you know, and I'm sorry, I'm sort of doing what Penn and Teller does when they reveal a magic trick. Um, you know, shows like Duck Dynasty, which are with real people, real situations. But what the uh, studio and the network don't want you to know is that there's 12 writers working feverishly creating storylines and scripts and what they need to say and the bullet points and things like that. So in situations like that, obviously the agency could be much more involved getting those kind of talent. Did you always find in your shows that you felt that that was that's cheating and you never wanted to hire any writers to write lines for people. You just wanted them to go and do their own thing, like the beginnings of the real world. Yeah, I mean, every reality show is produced in a unique way. There's no rule book. Um, and and I'm quite honestly not completely familiar with how Duck Dynasty makes their show. Um, but um, I've always felt that the best reality shows are the ones that... Uh, our true reality that that you are capturing something real that you know the unpredictableness once you start to bring writers in I think it can get predictable um, so I think you know writers are great when you're doing you know dramas or sitcoms or or you know those kinds of things but I generally find if you've if you've got the right situation you know the right world that you're taking your cameras in if you've got the right real people cast members whether it's a family or whether it's a business or something else or whether you've got a competition type show where the construct of the competition is producing great drama you generally don't need writers um and you know that's my that's the way i would i prefer to make reality television got it so tell me uh the next steps of how you meet mary ellis and how you pitch your first show that gets on the air the real world sure well um the second show i sold was called crime diaries and um i sold it to a company called quintex entertainment and the idea was that um we would do sort of a monday through friday scripted show actually um uh, and it would be sort of like a Hill Street Blues as if it had been in syndication. And this was, I think, before Hill Street Blues was on the air. Um, and and uh, uh, But the cases would be based on real cases. And so I actually spent a lot of time in the New York Public Library researching cases. And then uh, I needed someone to, um, to do this show with. And uh, uh, Mark hooked me up with Mary Alice Bunham, who had just finished producing, executive producing Santa Barbara, a daytime soap. And he thought that mixture of her soap Monday through Friday with my news and doc would would be perfect for crime diaries. And so we made a pilot. For, tell me tell me about your first meeting. Where did you meet? How, what was it? Well, you know, it's interesting. We actually um, we met over the phone and we developed the show uh, over the phone and um, faxing stuff back and forth. Uh, this was before email. Um, and um, so she was in Los Angeles. She was in LA. I was in New York. And it wasn't until we went out to pitch the show that uh, we met. She picked me up <laughs> at the at LAX, um, and she had a neck brace on. And um, did you know she had it? Was going to have a neck brace? No. And um, I will tell you in the audience, pitching a show 
is hard enough when you're able-bodied. Yeah, and so she said, well, you should, you drive. So great, I'm in L.A., I'm driving her car. She's wearing a neck brace, and we're going out to our pitches. And then as we would get to, you know, each place, she'd take off the neck brace and leave it in the car, and we'd go in there and pitch the show, and then we'd we'd come back to the car, and she'd put the neck brace back on. And the surprising thing was we actually didn't sell the show while we were in L.A. It wasn't until I was in New York um, and I happened to run into this uh, guy I had known who used to pitch me shows when I was at HRP named Mort Marcus, who had this new company called Quintex Entertainment. Of and, course. and I told him, oh, I just got back from, and now he has Deb Mar Mercury. Which, and, uh, which, uh, which started the uh, 1090 deals. For those of you who don't know, that's when uh, networks uh, will take a chance and produce 10 episodes. And if it gets a certain rating... By the 10th episode, they automatically pick up the 90 and you get your 100 episodes in syndication. Although now all you really need is 88 shows for syndication. So I don't really know if it's called the 1090 deal anymore. Um, so anyway, so I ran into Mort. I think it was at, at Rockefeller Center and he was asking me what I was up to. And I said, oh, I was just out in L.A. trying to sell this show. And he goes, what show? You didn't come to us? I go, <laughs> I, well, I didn't think it was, you know, you'd be interested. He goes, wait, I'm. I want to hear about it. And so it's always reminded me the best way to sell a show is to sell <laughs> sell it to someone who you tell first that it's really not right for them. It just makes them want it more. The power of no. Yeah. So uh, anyway, Mort stepped up and uh, gave us a pilot order, and, and we uh, and we made the uh, made the pilot, and it was for uh, for um, syndication. And uh, we went to NAPTI with it, and we sold about 53% of the com- country, which is not good enough. you got to be at around 80%. And NAPTI, and, for those of you who don't know, is a convention where all the syndicators go to sell their uh, their syndicated wares, and hopefully you can clear at least 85% of the market. Right. But something good came out of that, uh, despite not getting our show picked up. Um, the head of publicity at Quintex was a young woman named Delilah Loud. And I sat with her at dinner. And for me, this was a dream come true because I had watched her and her family, the Loud family, on PBS in 1973. It was this groundbreaking series on PBS where they put cameras into this family's life and documented them for a couple years. And they laid it out as 10 or actually 13 one-hour episodes and that show really sort of has always stuck in the back of my mind. That show and Michael Michael Apted's Seven Up series of movies following these group of young British kids from seven years old who were from different levels of socioeconomic um, backgrounds. Um, anyway, so meeting Delilah Loud just put something in my head. And it really made me think, you know, we had been, you know, we were trying to sell a scripted show based on real crime cases. So it sort of said to me, why are we doing that? Why aren't we just taking our cameras in and covering detectives and telling the, the stories, the real stories? Why do we need these actors? And so it just sort of started me thinking about really um, telling stories about real people. And we sold to Fox this sort of updated version of American families where we were going to follow a different family or family through a crisis or a transition in their lives. And um, Jonathan Dolgen and uh, Barry Diller bought this this pilot. And um, we ended up um, 
producing six episodes, and only the pilot ever actually aired because they were all gone by the time we <laughs> finished it, and a new regime came in and, and wasn't as interested. But um, but it was it was the first time that we made something where we followed we followed a young woman who was um, had um, had uh, um, had been adopted, and she really didn't know much about her birth parents because it was a closed adoption. And so we followed, but she was having a baby with her husband and she wanted to find out sort of medical information and background so that she could give that to her new child and be aware if there were any family medical situations she needed to know about. So we followed her and her search for her biological parents. And what made it a reality show is, you know, we paid for the the detective she was going to use. And we, we sort of, um, worked with her to figure out how we were going to tell this story. So it wasn't a pure documentary. Um, so that was a great experience. And at the time we were doing that, and Mark Itkin set us up with MTV, and they were interested in doing a s- scripted show about young people starting out their lives in New York. So Mary Ellis went off to New York and was working with MTV, and they developed a script. And it was called St. Mark's Place. Meanwhile, I was back in L.A. working on American Families, And um, ultimately, MTV decided that they didn't really want to do a scripted show, that it was too expensive, that, you know, actors, directors, it just didn't make sense. So we didn't want to let this opportunity pass us by. So I flew out to New York with the pilot from American Families, and Marius and I had breakfast with a the development exec at MTV named Lauren Correa at the May- old Mayf- the Mayflower Hotel. Lauren Correa. Yeah, she went on to Comedy Central yeah. with Doug Herzog. Also um, worked with Ellen as well. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we pitched her at breakfast at the Mayflower Hotel that's unfortunately no longer in New York, uh, the idea of doing an unscripted show about young people starting out their lives in New York. We would cast, at that time, six people for diversity, um, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different race, different sexual orientation, and out of that diversity would come conflict, and out of that conflict would come growth, and that would be our story. And um, we pitched her, and we would, rather than just have them live in a crappy apartment the way most people do when they start their lives in New York, we would create this beautiful loft, this fantasy loft, uh, and we'd, we'd score the series to the music that was on MTV. And so we laid out this idea of of this real life series and how we would make it um, as entertaining as a scripted drama. And she loved the idea. She had lived that when she first came to New York. She had lived with a bunch of people different from her. And had, she said it was just the most amazing period of her life because she learned so much about herself. And so she took it back to Doug Herzog. And by, by lunchtime, she called back and said, we want to do it. And And how often in your lifetime pitching shows have you pitched and had somebody call by lunchtime and say they're going to do the show? It doesn't, it used to happen more, but today there's so many layers of people who have to approve. No one seems to be able to make a decision. There's always like some offsite where they all get together and look at 20 pilots or, you know, 20 development ideas. It's just, it's, it's, it's changed in that way. The, the development executives used to have a lot more freedom just to go with something that they were passionate about. And what was the original name of the show? Uh, we call it uh, Real Life. Real Life. Uh, but then Jane Pauley came along and did a very short-lived series for NBC called Real Life. So we had to find another 
title. And Did I'm you send actually, her a fruit basket? <laughs> I'm really happy we came up with the real world. Um, and we, um, so we did a pilot over Memorial Day weekend. We uh, cast six young people out of New York. One of them actually was Lauren Correo's uh, assistant, Tracy Grandstaff, who later went on to be the voice of Daria, um, the animated uh, core series. Um, and we shot over this, we, sh- you know, we sh- for three days over Memorial Day weekend, we, we, we chronicled these young people who we moved into a Soho loft. And, uh, Do you remember the budget of your pilot presentation? Yeah, it was, um, $87,000 <laughs> and we shot it with high eight cameras and we brought all the material back to LA and edited it into two 22 minute episodes. And, um, which is kind of unusual to 22 minute episode. Yeah, well, we wanted to show sort of the progression of how story can progress from one episode to the next. What would that cost today to do two 22 minute episodes? Uh, that would probably cost 800,000. Um, but um, we didn't really know what we were doing, so we just sort of <laughs> blundered our way through it. But um, but we knew, you know, within five minutes of the young people arriving at that loft and watching their interactions, that there was something really special here. I mean, we all did. Lauren, myself, Mary Ellis, we all looked at each other and said, wow, this is really interesting. And then the network um, tested it. The testing went through the roof. And then it waited nine months before ordering the series because it was a major change in how they would do business. Because up to that point, they had just aired music videos and some studio shows that they produced in-house. So this would be MTV's first original series. First original series by an outside production company, not set in a studio. Um, And so it was a big moment for them. And uh, ultimately, on the last day that they could order the series, they picked it up. And, um, you know, we went into production on that first season, which was 13 half hours. And, uh, you know, the first episode aired and, uh, I think their average for prime time was about a 0.4 and we got a 0.9. So we more than doubled the time period within weeks. The show had grown and was, was, you know, above a one rating, which was huge for them. Um, which translates for those of you who listening to about. Back then, probably close to a million people watching or a little bit more than a million watching. Yeah, and it, you know, it, uh, New York Times did a two-page two arts and leisure piece. Entertainment, Entertainment Weekly did an eight-page spread. NBC Nightly News did a three-minute piece. I mean, if nothing else, it got MTV the attention that it wanted. It reinforced their brand as being cutting edge and offering something for their viewers that nobody else offered. And then on top of that, it turned out to be a success and a big hit for them. What's fascinating for you, Mary Ellis, was the fact that (laughs) perception isn't always reality. Mm -hmm. You're doing a series, 13 episodes. There's two of you splitting the paycheck. So everybody thinks, you know, you got all these articles all over. Everybody thinks you guys are like, you know, millionaires. You're, You're the hottest producers ever. Yet the license fee, chances are, if it cost 87000 to do the pilot, chances are they didn't give you much more per episode to do it. So let's just pretend, for the sake of argument, they let's even pretend they gave you 150000 episode, which they didn't. Yeah, it was less than that. So you're talking about a situation where you, you only had about a million, million and a half dollars to make it. 
executive producers, for those of you who don't know, you get 10% normally, which is your fee as executive producers. And then whatever you get from the line item for your editing or whatever, maybe you can carve out 10 or 20 extra percent if you're lucky. But the way you guys wanted to produce and how you wanted to do great work, chances are you put every dollar back into it. So you were hugely successful and revered, yet you were still not really making it. Well, I don't know if we were revered at that point. We were sort of an anomaly, um, <laughs> and no one quite understood this show. Um, but, yeah, no, at that point, you know, I was living in, um, you know, when I first came out to L.A. from New York, where I had, you know, owned an apartment and was doing pretty well, you know, for, for the first week, I came out here in 87 and the real world didn't go on the air until 92. And we were doing some pilots, but you really can't make it much of a living off pilots. So I, for many of those years, I was living in a little studio apartment, uh, and driving a 10 year old Honda Accord. And that's really cause our audience did to hear that it, I know it sounds odd, but it means the world because it lets people know that what it takes to get to where you need to go. And even when you get there and things are starting to roll, you're still living in the studio apartment because you don't, you're just trying to put everything back into your company. Yeah, it was, um, you know, and I really wasn't, and it didn't bother me living in a studio apartment because I was, and it didn't bother me driving a 10 year old car other than the fact that it seemed to break down at every major intersection. <laughs> um, because I was just so focused on and so excited about what I was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, but yeah, so, so yeah, we weren't making a lot of money, but the show was definitely um, edgy and we were getting a lot of meetings and people were completely confused by how we were making it. They assumed there was a script or that it was an improv. They just couldn't quite understand that it was they the real interaction. Couldn't quite understand it until everyone started trying to rip it off. Right. Um, but anyway, so it took a while, too, because, you know, that show went on the air in 92 and it wasn't until the year 2000 that Big Brother and Survivor went on the air, you know, on CBS. Um, there was about an eight year period where the networks just were not interested in reality. Mike Darnell at Fox was doing a few interesting things, but reality really didn't take off in a big way in America until survivor and and big brother that were european imports those were based on successful european shows my argument would be that reality didn't really take off until you created the real world well certainly it was one of the it was you know other than candid camera which you mentioned it was sort of one of the the modern day reality show that sort of reignited what candid camera had started um but um yeah there were about eight years where we were doing that and, you know, we were doing some other things in cable. We, we later did Road Rules and um, in 1999 we did Making the Band. Um, Love and, that show. And, uh, but it wasn't until, again, Survivor and, and, and Big Brother that it really took off. Got it. So things are going well. You're starting to get some things on the air, which is exciting. When do you and Mary Ellis feel like we're there? We're finally there. We're, we're never going back. We got something special and we're never going to have to worry whether this whole thing is going to go away. I think it's natural for producers to always worry. 
we, after season three of The Real World, which was in San Francisco with uh, Pedro and Puck and Judd and Pam, it was just a great season. And that season, The Real World really broke out. I mean, that was the season where it, it sort of was being talked about beyond the entertainment pages. It was being talked on the news pages because of Pedro. And President Clinton uh, used Pedro as an example of, you know, that more young people, that, that a show like The Real World with Pedro on it could do more to um, to really promote safe sex than any PSA that the federal government could make, um, and so the show, you know, and at that and right after San Francisco, we did uh, we we did the pilot for Road Rules and then got that on the air. So we had two shows on the air that were just getting. I mean, by that point, we were up to like a three or a four rating on MTV, which was insanity, was just huge. That's sort of like Duck Dynasty type numbers. Yeah. But it was sort it of was interesting because Duck Dynasty the numbers. network would never sort of make hay about the fact that they had these big ratings from the real world or road rules because they were at that time still saying we're a music channel. So we were sort of like, you know, the, the dirty <laughs> secret of the network. Um, and so it was odd. It was it was strange. They were I mean, MTV was great to work with. I've I've never had a better, better experience. Um, never have they tried to censor us or um, and they've just been so supportive. Um, but at the same time, their brand was music. And so these shows sort of were changing their brand and it wasn't really until probably the early 2000 period where they finally 10 years later sort of acknowledged that. What year did they stop sending an executive to the set to give you notes? You know, MTV's was great from the beginning. They, they, because the real world shot, you know, for 15, 20 weeks it didn't. They couldn't afford to send a network to the set, so we we never really had a network on the set, and um, the notes have always been very very minimal. They've 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 just been a great partner to work with. Um, so it wasn't. So I think after season three and ninety four of the Real World and with Road Rules on the air, that was where we sort of breathed a sigh of relief, and that's where we were starting to get, um, you know, other networks asking us in to say, well, what do you have for us? So, um, but, you know, even 10 years later, we still, our main shows were on MTV. And as a company, we realized we needed to, to diversify the buyers that we had. So, you know, we were very fortunate that Gail Berman, uh, who was a big fan of the real world, she was at Fox and she encouraged Mike Darnell to bring us in and see if we could do some programming together. And we did, uh, uh, the Love Cruise with with Mike, which was um, a really fun dating show, um, and then we did uh, The Simple Life with Fox, um, which was which was groundbreaking, probably the highest rated show I've ever done because I think at one point it was up to 14 million viewers for a reality show, and I don't think any other reality docu soap has ever been successful on network TV. And you're right; it's like I've never heard of a reality show being so strong as that one. And again, that revolutionized the way things were because there had never been a reality sitcom before, and it broke open the doors for everything else. So now you're innovating <laughs> reality television in one way, now a second way, and then you know, based on what you're talking about, how the influences of the soap opera and how uh, Mary Ellis uh, came from Santa Barbara. 
you come up with the idea of the first reality soap opera, which is starting over. Yeah, which was back to syndication. We did it with NBC Universal, and um, we did we produced. Oh God, it was like uh, two hundred and was it a hundred two hundred fifty episodes, <laughs> hour episodes? No, I think it was. It couldn't have been that many. Anyway, I think by the time we were over after three seasons, we had almost five hundred one-hour episodes that we well, produced Well, I think it could daytime. be that, that many because now you do a syndicated show. It's around 150 episodes that's on a strip. Mm. And so, I mean, uh, per year. So I think it definitely could have been more yeah, than Yeah, so because people had always asked us, could you do could you do a show like Real World on a, on a daily basis, Monday through Friday, for syndication? And it wasn't until we was starting over, the idea was there were six women in a house who each had something she was trying to change about herself. Um, she was stuck somehow, and she needed help. And we had two life coaches that would work with the women and help them uh, do different exercises. So we were able to construct a show that we could, for each day that we shot, we could get one hour of television time out of it because it wasn't just a docu-series about these women living in the house. We had the life coaches, and we had the specific things that they had to do. So that gave us a structure to the show, which allowed us to, to, to produce that much television that quickly. Um, and it was, it was, a, again, NBC Universal, um, Ed Wilson, uh, brought us there and, and, uh, uh, Linda Fennell was our exec. And again, they were just great. They just left us alone and gave us support. And, and it was just one of the most fun experiences I think any of us had had. I remember something that I've quoted on this podcast before Michael Wright said at a, uh, at a dinner when he was the guest speaker, he said his philosophy with talent is <laughs> get the fuck out of the way and let them do what they do. And so these executives let you guys do what you do and uh, it works. So tell me uh, how the Kardashians came about. Sure. Well, we had, you know, uh, after season three, I think, of The Simple Life, um, a new regime came into Fox, Peter Liguori. And I think one of his first calls was to me to say that um, they weren't going to continue with The Simple Life. You know, and I was, and it, the show was doing really well. And I was sort of a little dumbfounded by it and a little bitter that, you know, that this new regime came in and didn't want to you know, this show that was doing so great. Um, but we did it with Gary and Dana at 20th, 20th Century so, Productions. So they wanted to go somewhere else. And so I called my um, friend, um, Lisa Berger, who had been my exec on The Real World. And she, she was at E. She was at MTV at first, and then yeah. she went to E, and now she's well, anyway, at Anyway, but I called Lisa and I said, The Simple Life could be available. Um, would you be interested? And she got together with Ted Harbert, and we quickly, with, with Dana and Gary, worked out a deal for us to move the show for season four over to um, E. And that went into the 10 o'clock time period and really began that celeb reality thing that E has been so successful with, which, you know, after The Simple Life finished up its run on E, um, uh and interestingly enough, Kim Kardashian had been a guest a couple times in a couple of the Simple Life episodes. Um, at that time, she had a closet organizing business that she had. Um, anyway, Kim was making the rounds, pitching a series. Uh, Ryan Seacrest, she ended up in his office. Um, he recognized that there was something there. 
They uh, sent a producer out with a camera to shoot some stuff in the Kardashian home. Um, and uh, and then um, E saw the tape and said, oh, there's something here. It's really good. And Ryan was just starting his company. And E Lisa wanted it on the air like tomorrow. And so she suggested that Ryan work with Buna Murray. And so we got a call, uh, I think, on a Thursday. I was actually in Florida working on one of our shows, and they um, put the sizzle reel up on the server so that I could look at it. And it was it was amazing because it was this family, and you could see, oh, there's Bruce, the conservative dad. There's mom, the ma- mominger, meddling mom. There's the three beautiful older sisters, all very different from each other. Chloe sort of wisecracking and funny, and Kim just so beautiful and so kind and sweet, and Courtney with a little bit of tartness thrown in. And then you had the two younger sisters, and you had Rob, uh, the son. I mean, there was just there was a ready-made sitcom family there. And so, I, you know, I, I said, this is great. We should do this. And over the weekend, the, you know, all the lawyers got together. We worked out a deal to make a co-production with Ryan Seacrest. And uh, we started pre-production on the Monday. Uh, and uh, it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And it's just, this is an example. And this is so great you're here because I think people need to know this. You do great work. And you're not an asshole to people and you have, you maintain and keep great relationships and you will get the call. And so you put all in all that great work all throughout the years, you gut it out, you fight it out to build your company. And then what the reward is sometimes is you get the call, the first call from somebody like Lisa Berger that just says, I mean, that one call, this isn't a dispute all the amazing hard work you have to do to produce keeping up with the Kardashians. But that one phone call led to, I mean, I think over a hundred episodes of that show. Then you got the spinoff of Courtney and Kim, I think take Miami and then was it the, the, the New York version or something like that. So yeah, it's in like, New York and we're shooting actually, uh, uh, Chloe and Courtney and Chloe or Chloe and Courtney take uh, the Hamptons right now. Yeah. So that one call and that one relationship that you maintained out throughout the years created the situation, a symbiotic relationship where you delivered for the network. You helped Ryan Seacrest start his company. And for those of you who want to do any research, because we don't have the time to do it now, research every single actor or host who started his own production shingle in this town and research all of them and find out how many of them have ever gotten anything on the air. And it's like 1% of 1% of 1%. And you helped Ryan build his company with your production knowledge. You gave him the tools and he also found these people, which was great. And he was available for that to help you guys as well. But Lisa Berger with the phone call, one phone call creates millions of dollars for your company in production. And you reward her with a, a show that's brilliant. That's a hit show. It's it's it it's really Yeah, and it it happened again when um you know uh Bonnie Hammer who runs all of uh NBC Universal uh cable um, when they did a deal to uh, with Vince McMahon to do uh, something with the Divas. 
Lisa Berger called us up and said, you guys, can you work with WWE and make this show? So we have another show on E! now called Total Divas. Um, and then when Lisa recently went to ABC, one of her first calls was to us because she had something, uh, a format from Europe that she said, I think you guys would be great at making it. So, yeah, it is about relationships. Um, but, you know, they're not going to make that call unless you've delivered. If You know, it's not just about the friendship. It's about a trust and a knowledge that you can you can deliver, that you can make that show, make it well, make it on time, make it on budget. Great. And so we don't have much time left, so I'm going to wrap up with a few things here. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions, and then I'll ask you uh, one last thing. So what's your uh, biggest disappointment professionally with all these particular shows and things that have happened within the working matrix of all these television productions. The biggest disappointment is that we have yet to create some kind of uh, a format that could, that could sort of take over the world the way Big Brother did. I would love to create a big format in America that then, um, Banerjee, my parent company, could sell all over the world. Um, we haven't done that yet. We've made a, we've had a very successful company, but we haven't created that mega hit that just took over the world. Tell me a television show that's on the air that when you watch it, you're like, <sighs> I wish I had that one. Naked and Afraid. I think it's a really good show. Um, it's, you know, where they take two people, two, two people who are survival, survivalists, uh, people who are, you know, can, can handle themselves in the wild, and they pluck them down in the middle of nowhere naked, and it's a guy and a girl, and they literally, all they have is a bag that they can sort of put over their shoulder, which covers some areas. Um, and they have to get to a certain point in 30 days, and... They just have to make do with what's ever in the forest or on the desert and get there. And it's really, really good. Very simple. Often the best shows are a very simple premise. That's right. If you can go into a room and in one sentence or two tell the person, the buyer, what the show is, it's uh, chances are you have a great chance of selling it. But then now you got to pop in the sizzle reel. Your proudest moment professionally Wow. Um, you know, I definitely think um, the, the, the season three of, of The Real World with Pedro and the impact that had, um, you know, we got some awards from, from a number of organizations sort of acknowledging the impact that featuring Pedro had that, that you know, many lives had been saved because he sort of awakened young people to the need to 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 be careful when you're having sex and to protect yourself. So probably that was uh, the most satisfying um, thing. Awesome. Uh, a couple of words. Uh, uh, I'm just going to mention a few people and just anything that comes to your mind. Paris Hilton. Paris, um, you know, is a really sweet young woman. Um, she is kind She's generous. Um, she can be charming. 
and you know, it was doing the simple life was hard work. And I think it's probably the hardest she had ever worked at that point in her life. And, and there, I will be honest, there were tough days for her. She didn't want to do it sometimes. But ultimately, um, I look back on that experience with her and with Nicole Ritchie with a lot of uh, affection and, and good memories. Kim Kardashian. Kim is an ultimate professional. She is about the business. She gets it done. Awesome. Autism the Musical. That was, uh, you know, we as a company decided we wanted to do some documentaries and our basic idea was to do things on social issues, things we, things we might not be able to make a TV, a reality show about, and, um, and to generally work with first-time filmmakers and help them get their, their passion project made. And Autism the Musical was such a project which allowed us to go into the different families and see the impact of autism on their family and and not only see the struggle with it, but also see those moments when, you know, that kid gives you a smile or you have that little breakthrough that just makes all the difference for those families. Tim Gunn. Tim Gunn, a total gentleman, um, just a complete pleasure to work with. And finally, in terms of uh, somebody that I wanted to ask you to just what comes to your mind is, of course, Mary Ellis. Wow. Well, it was, you know, I shared the same office and the same, same desk with her from 1987 to when she passed away in 2004. Um, and... Um, in all those years, we never had an argument. We had this basic philosophy that whoever had the most passion for a project would take the lead on it. Yet we would have each other to bounce things off of. Um, and if, it, if I was having a hard day, she'd step in and rescue me. And if she was having a hard day, I'd step in and rescue her. And, you know, going back to just like when we first met and she had that neck brace on, you know, as she battled breast cancer, she she was she just was not going to let breast cancer stop her. And I remember we had an important meeting with Paris Hilton at that point. Mary Ellis was on oxygen. And so she had the oxygen tank underneath the desk, underneath the table that we sat at. And so she she said, OK, we, she wanted to develop a signal that if she you know, if she needed me to get Paris out of the room, I'd I'd get Paris out if she gave the signal. And so she took a couple, you know, big breaths of oxygen, put the mask under the table and they brought Paris in. And um, that was how she was. She just, you know, she was, I, I think she was one of that generation of women who, you know, they were the first really to break through and it wasn't easy for them. And the fact that she had broken through and got there, she didn't want to let go. She wanted to savor every moment of what she had achieved and uh, she, you know, she loved coming to work. She, she just approached each day with such energy and enthusiasm. And uh, she pretty much worked up until her last few days. Incredible story. Last question. Uh, it's hard, you know, when you talk about that. To... You've just been through so much, John. It's just... Uh... I guess that's what shapes the man. It's just uh, incredible. But um, to close this off, like, um, 
for those of us out there in the world who are living in that studio apartment who don't know, living check to check, buying the five craft macaroni and cheeses for a dollar with ketchup, trying to figure out how to get to the next level. What advice do you have for the uh, young artist out there to get to the next level, to be a certain person who's like, could be a star on one of your television shows and worldwide. And what advice do you have for the young executive who's just starting off with like a dollar and a dream and in some place in Rochester, New York and a news station or wherever they are, or whatever profession they're in and to get to the next level, to have the kind of career that you've had? You know, I think it's really being focused on the moment and being focused on where you are at that point and doing your best. So whether you're in a, a little station in Green Bay, Wisconsin, you're doing your absolute best work and you're learning from the people around you. You know, when I first went to work at this station in Green Bay, Wisconsin, WLUK, you know, I was working with anchor people who were twice my age. I was working with reporters who were older. I was the youngest guy, yet I was producing the news. And I was learning from those people. And I was learning every day. And I was making mistakes. But every time I made a mistake, I made sure I learned from it. And, you know, I think I couldn't have taken each step that I took without the groundwork and the learning that went in that led me to that next step. So, you know, you're not just going to go from having a great idea at the coffee shop to running a company. You know, if you're interested in reality television, then you need to go to work for the reality production company that you you like their work. Uh, you know, when I interview young people who come to work for Buna Murray, I'm always like interested in what they watch on television and what drew them to Buna Murray. I want them to be our future executives. So I want them to come in, you know, and be ready to work at every job in the company and work their way up. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. And I wasn't even thinking about it happening overnight. I was so in the moment and so focused on the current job that I had it was just sort of like out of nowhere would come these offers and these opportunities because I really believe this industry is very democratic. If you work hard, it will be recognized and people will want to hire you. And even today, I, I'm not the best at everything. And I go out and try and find the people who are good at what they do. Um, and, and, you know, I think there aren't enough people who are really good at what they do. So when you work hard and you're good at something, you're going to, you're going to get work and you're going to quickly rise. You know, we have, we, we have people at Buna Murray who, who, you know, within five years of coming to the company are running a television show and they've worked their way up from logging to coordinating to casting to uh, field work, field directing, then producing, and finally show running. And they t all take different paths, but they usually work their way through the different aspects of, of making a television show because you need that experience in order to really do that, that incredible crafting that, that takes place each day when you're making a TV show. Wow. This has been amazing. So inspirational. I feel that this is going to be a great thing for our audience. And I'm so grateful you came here. And uh, I believe that you are one of the best at everything. And I feel 
your energy and it's amazing. And I, I honestly feel the energy of your former partner as well, just in you and the whole interview. It's just so special. Thank you so much for coming here. I know you've never done a podcast before, but uh, I'm very greatly appreciative. Thank you. You can always learn something. I learned about podcasts today, so it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. And as usual, this is me, Barry Katz, with another episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.